This is part two of the Boudicca series. Make sure you listen to part one first to get up to date on the story up to this point. We just had the death of King Prasutagus of the local Iceni tribe in Britain, and now the Roman occupying force is sending their own representative to renegotiate their position and cement their control over the Iceni people. This is probably not going to turn out so well. Let's see how it unfolds. Hello, and welcome to the Spark History Show, where we bring history to light. Take a dive with us into history and hear the real accounts of the stories of the past as they actually unfolded. Explore with us as we shine some light on the amazing events that shaped our world into what we have today. We are going to recreate the stories of the past to better understand the struggles and triumphs during the most epic moments in history. This is the Spark History Show. Let us begin the journey. Catus Decianus was the Roman procurator that was assigned with the task of heading to the home of the Iceni after the death of King Prasutagus and putting forth the Roman interests and annex the lands of the Iceni to Roman control. In Roman terms, the procurator was an agent appointed to an administrative position to oversee finances in their respective territories. The name procurator was created from the Latin word procurare, which means to take care of. Keep that definition in mind as you hear the events that transpire here with Catus Decianus. On the edges of the empire, as we are here in Britain, the procurator also would have a small troop detachment to assist in controlling their territory and maybe even had judicial authority. He was, however, still under the order of the governor of his province. When Decianus arrived with his force to the home of Prasutagus, he was appalled that the king thought he could give away half his kingdom in his own will. The Romans thought of him as a puppet king. He really didn't own the lands. They were owned by Rome, and Rome was merely leasing it out to him. How could the dead king give away that which he really didn't own? There was also the issue that Decianus had to bring up of an outstanding debt that required payment from the Iceni. Not only had the Roman emperor provided loans to the people of Britain, but also a high-ranking Roman statesman by the name of Seneca also had loaned out 40 million sesterces to the tribes of Britain, the ballpark equivalent in today's dollars to between 62 million and 118 million. I know that is a huge range, but that is the struggle when trying to bring estimated amounts from ancient times into modern day fiat currencies. The amount of Seneca's sum alone is said to have been large enough to possibly bankrupt the entire island of Britain if the tribes had to try and repay it all back at one time. When the Romans arrived, they apparently demanded the Iceni share of the debt as immediate payment. Now, usually debts would be paid off over time by paying an interest on the debt every year and slowly paying off the initial principal. It is similar to how we pay off a mortgage on a house today. But imagine if someone from the government 
came to your door and demanded under the harshest terms that your entire outstanding mortgage had to be paid in full right now. Few, if anyone, would be able to meet that demand. And even if you could, imagine the financial strain it would put on you and your family. This is where another clash of cultures would come into play. We are in ancient times here, and the Britons, although they had their own coinage, did not have a complex financial system such as the one the Romans operated. In the practices of the tribes, gifts of value were usually just that, gifts. They were not expected to be repaid, and there wasn't a complex system of measuring the interest and amortization of a loan. On top of this, Decianus was known as a greedy man, and when he saw how the village of the Essini had prospered under their association with the Romans for the last 12 years, he felt more secure in demanding his own share of their wealth. Decianus apparently used the situation of the unpaid debt to give him and his troops the authority to ravage the village. His centurions went about looting the territory. Pursuitagus's royal house was ransacked and robbed. The king's relatives were gathered up in chains to be taken as slaves. Even Roman historian Tacitus seemed appalled at the uncivilized actions of Decianus. But it got even worse. The widowed wife of Pursuitagus, Boudicca, was dragged out into the middle of the village, tied to a pole, and flogged by the Romans. The term flogged as described in the Roman historical context was when an individual would be beaten upon the back with a whip, lash, rod, or some other dreadful device. Imagine not only the immense physical pain that Boudicca had to bear, but also the demoralizing feeling of a queen being physically assaulted and belittled in front of her own people. As if that wasn't enough, Roman soldiers also dragged out the two daughters of Boudicca and Pursutagus, both of which were believed to have been in their teens or younger. The soldiers then raped the poor children and left their queen beaten and battered emotionally and physically from the series of events. The children were alive, but would most likely be traumatized forever. It was believed that Decianus may have wanted to completely desecrate the royal family of Pursutagus. In this time period, a princess in standing that was not a virgin would not be considered fit for marriage by another king or royal family. In this way, the savage rape of the daughters may have also been a way to ensure that their royal house and lineage was not left standing. Some speculation also occurred that the Roman dispatchmen here felt that the townspeople were comprised of their slaves and that they were free to do with them as they wished, and that added to them treating the locals so harshly. Instead of treating the local Iceni as an ally as they had been for the last number of years, the entire mindset of the Roman force thought of them only as subjects that they could do with however they pleased. In Tacitus' writing, 
and in the generally held beliefs of what was proper civilized behavior in Roman times, the degenerate actions of Decianus and his troops were by no means what should have occurred in this scenario. An important point in the historical text we have is that although Tacitus clearly described the flogging and rapes, Dio failed to mention them at all in his writing and had only indicated the immediate payment of debt as the cause of the unrest among the Iceni tribe. Although Dio was writing much later than Tacitus, we don't know why he left out the brutal actions. He may have not heard them from his sources, or maybe withheld them for political purposes, or maybe even Tacitus could have fabricated the event to make the story more intense. This is another part of the story where we will never be able to determine an exact answer. Under Roman law, a free woman would usually not receive flogging as a punishment, and those individuals that acted out a rape would be charged and possibly executed for their crime. It was even more egregious in the case of Boudicca and her children as they were part of a royal family and would have a higher diplomatic status. Decianus arriving at the Asini village and the disgrace that occurred were the prelude to a number of terrible events that were now set in motion. On whether the loan or the flogging and rapes occurred, you can come to your own conclusions. But imagine what the Iceni people and royal family had to go through. After this, the war that would be led by Queen Boudicca would become one of the largest rebellions against the Roman Empire in 50 years. After the Romans left the village, the anger towards the Romans from what had occurred started to boil over into the surrounding countryside as word spread. You can imagine the pure rage that Boudicca would have had brewing inside of her. She was beaten, her daughters were raped, and her family and tribe were looted, decimated, and enslaved. The wealth of her people was swept away. And all of this was caused by a people that were supposed to be allies. The Iceni had a treaty with the Romans and were on positive terms for the past 12 years. Maybe the Romans would do something like this to an enemy, to a hated rival. But to her and her people? Why? People started to band together around Boudicca as she demanded retribution on the Romans. After what had transpired, everything down to her very soul probably yearned for revenge. While we don't have exact details, we have an overview of how a rebellion started to take shape. Local tribes started to have secret meetings where the leaders would rally up their followers against all of the abuse they had felt at the hands of the Romans. It is interesting to note that although there were many other kings or chiefs from the different tribes, Boudicca's name is the one that is solely remembered as the driving force of the rebellion. There is only one known description of Boudicca, and it comes from Cassius Dio. I quote, In build she was very tall, in her demeanor most terrifying. In the glint of her eye most fierce, and her voice was as harsh. 
A great mound of the tawniest hair fell to her hips. Around her neck was a large golden torque, and she wore a tunic of many colors upon which a thick cloak was fastened with a brooch. This was her general attire. End quote. During Roman times, the reference to tawniest hair was a term to describe a red hair color. To the Romans, red hair was foreign and gave a distinct sense of barbarism. One of the Roman emperors had a parade of slaves from foreign cultures to show the people from all the lands Rome conquered and to make them look more like barbarians even had a number of them forced to dye their hair red before being paraded in front of the locals. So we know that in his writing, when Dio describes Boudicca with red hair, it would help set an image of a barbarian for his fellow Roman readers or listeners. Since this is the only known description, her image in this form has survived to this day. A lot of times in modern cultures, when you see a depiction of a female warrior with red hair, spear, and Celtic-style dress with leather and plaid patterns, it is derived from this image that Dio created of Boudicca. We do know from archaeological evidence that the golden torque from around her neck was most likely accurate, as this form of jewelry was found directly in the area of Norfolk where the Iceni tribe was located. Torques were bands of metal twisted together that were worn around the neck. They looked like a piece of thick rope where you can see how the different threads of smaller rope wrapped, twisted, circling around each other to form one large rope. The difference is that the torque would be made of iron, bronze, or gold. And in Boudicca's case, as she was queen, most likely gold. The twisted metal would wrap around from the back of the neck to the front in a horseshoe shape. The two ends in the front, which would be just like a horseshoe of today, as they didn't fully connect, would usually have either a knob or a loop on both ends. In this way, it would sit on the wearer's neck very prominently. Although it is most likely that the neck ornaments would not have been worn in battle as they were too heavy, they would be commonplace in normal circumstances. The tunic of many colors is also what would have been expected. Many wool cloaks produced by Gauls were imported to Rome for their superior qualities in different weather and being waterproof. Regarding the selection of bright colors, it makes me picture the plaid designs that you see in Scottish culture. The brooch that was fastened to Boudicca's tunic is similar to what is in the Game of Thrones show, the Hand of the King pin. It is an ornament that would be pinned onto the tunic and displayed. The ones from Boudicca's time would have most likely been more ornamental to help show status. So now you hopefully have a picture of Boudicca, the mighty warrior queen, as she went about secret meetings with other tribes, uniting other warriors in her campaign to go on a devastating run against the Romans. It reminds me a bit of the movie Braveheart, 
where before William Wallace went against the English, he had to unite the separate Scottish tribes into one cohesive fighting unit. Another point in history that this happened is when Genghis Khan had to bring together many different nomadic tribes in Northeast Asia before he went on to conquer most of the known world. It seems like this plan of bringing together the tribes was pretty effective at different points in history. To persuade fellow tribes to take up arms, a list of abuses was presented. Those that were on the side of going to war tried to convince the others why it was a sound strategy and why it was the righteous action to take. During the Revolutionary War in the United States, the colonists at the time wrote up a list of 27 grievances that they presented to the English King George III to show why they were willing to rebel. This ended up being in the form of the Declaration of Independence. In Boudicca's time, they may not have had such a carefully crafted description of the issues as we have with the Declaration, but we are aware of a number of problems and abuses that were brewing at the time. During this time period, the main type of religion in Britain was a cult-like following of elder druids that was practiced throughout the various tribes. These religious figures were given the utmost respect by the local populations and were consulted before major decisions were taken. To become a druid could take up to 20 years of continuous study. 350 stories of history would be memorized word for word by the Druids. They would constantly practice and study their own religion. They would also learn as much as possible regarding astrology and medicine and the workings of the world around them. Caesar took notes about the Druids during his wars against the Gauls and indicated that any real man of high rank in the foreign society was established with the title of Knight or Druid. Since I am on a kick on references to other time periods, the story of the Druids makes me envision the scene from the movie 300 where the Spartans of ancient Greece first had to consult the Oracle of Delphi before being allowed to declare war. In the movie, it didn't turn out so well for the Spartans, but I think it helps to show the control that this type of higher power would have with their ability to make decisions for the masses. To the Romans, the Druids were not only a threat as people followed their religion, but also because they had power over the local populace on choosing to fight or not to fight against the Roman occupiers. A tribe couldn't go to war against the occupying forces unless they consulted with the Druids and it was approved. The Romans had strongly campaigned to wipe out the Druids and this offense was taken to heart by many of the people of Britain who could see their very religion and culture was being suppressed by the Romans. It is most likely that the Druids were directly involved in assisting Boudicca to unite the tribes in an act of rebellion against the Romans. They were probably even the ones that elected her as the head, or in modern terms, general of the rebellion, which gave her additional power to run the campaign as she saw fit. 
Another hatred that built up with the local population was the Roman occupation of Camulodunum, which is known today as the modern city of Colchester. The Romans conquered the village and turned it into a thriving Roman city. The largest population of Britain at the time made their home here, and the village was transformed into a Roman-style city. There was a theater and streets and houses all laid out in a grid-like formation. The houses were made of plaster and had tile roofs, different than the typical round mud hut with a thatched roof made of straw, which was found in most villages in Britain. After you had running water, baths, sanitation, and goods available from all edges of the empire, would you really want to go back to the subsistence level you had before, just trying to survive? There is a funny Monty Python skit called What Have the Romans Ever Done for Us? that makes good satire of this type of irony with Roman control, if you want to check it out. Romans used these type of locations and amenities to spread their culture around the world. The Roman culture would spread like a virus as people would enjoy the amenities of Roman civilization and the surrounding areas would slowly evolve to contain more and more Roman attributes, in the same effect losing some of their ties to their old culture. This enabled the empire to keep expanding while converting the local populations to the Roman way of life and making them less likely to revolt. The problem for the Romans with the territory in Britain was that this was the frontier, the colony at the edge of the empire. To the Britons, the city of Camulodunum was a slap in the face of their culture. It was everything that they didn't believe in. It was even labeled the Roman capital of Britain. Roman soldiers who were veterans were given land grants near these types of cities to help spread Roman influence. They could retire and would already have a plot of land to call home. With the Iceni's neighboring tribe, the Trinovantes, this seemed to be a major issue. The Trinovantes were the tribe directly south of the Iceni, and their territory had once included the city of Camulodunum. Now that Roman veterans were gaining plots of land, it is most likely that more and more territory was taken from the Trinovantes to provide the veterans with their new homesteads. It is also suspected that the veterans were mistreating the local population. Unruly taxes were also levied on the population of Britain to pay for Rome's governance and offer tribute back to Rome. On top of this, there was a giant temple to Emperor Claudius that was constructed in Camulodunum, and the burden of the cost was taxed from the local populace. This temple was the largest structure in the area, but did any of the Britons actually want it there? When we know ideas today like taxation without representation, what do you think about being heavily taxed to build a monument to a religion that none of your people believe in and that by its very presence is threatening to destroy your own culture and religion? There were also Roman moneylenders that would make loans to the local populace at high interest rates. A populace that was unfamiliar with the complex financial systems that Romans had developed. Would you like to check out an adjustable rate mortgage and save money when buying your new house? 
Sound like a good idea? It did until 2008. And many of the people that bought those mortgages at earlier times didn't realize that they had put themselves in a vexing position in later years when interest rates went way up. A similar type of occurrence happened with the local population of Britons in ancient times where they made a deal that at first sounded positive, but they then found themselves in over their heads as time drew on. To summarize, we have the attack on the Druids, the founding of a Roman capital city on the territory of the Britons, the forced patronage to the Temple of Claudius, and extreme taxation and underhanded financial schemes peddled by the Romans. All this occurred on top of the physical beating of Queen Boudicca, rape of her daughters, and pillaging of her people. What more convincing do you need? The Iceni had a peace treaty with Rome, and look how they were treated. Could your tribe be next? Are you ready to stand up and fight alongside your brothers that have decided they are not going to take it anymore and screamed, that is enough? <sighs> Historians suggest that the gathering of the tribes to form a unified rebellion went on for several months. In the end, Boudicca had convinced the many chiefs of the Iceni and the important southern neighbors of the Trinovantes to take up the cause. The timing to take up arms against the Romans was also ripe. The first attack on the Iceni was done with a small band of maybe up to 200 soldiers as a dispatch to the procurator Catus Decianus. We didn't know the exact numbers, but it was not a normal fighting force and would not stand a chance against an outright rebellion. It was not the Roman standard military unit, the Legion. At the time, there were four legions stationed in Britain. The Legion 9th Hispania was stationed in the northeastern tip of the Roman-held territory in the city of Lincoln. This was actually about 100 miles north-northwest of the Iceni. In modern times, with our entire infrastructure, it would take maybe two and a half hours to drive from one location to the other. Walking, it could take up to 30 hours. In the Roman Britain time, the soldiers could march about 70 miles in two days. The 9th Legion was protecting the border of the Roman territory from hostile tribes to the north that had not been brought under Roman control. The problem in this scenario was that all of the prime Roman targets for the Iceni to attack were in southern England. The 9th would have to march down through enemy territory to assist in defending any of the cities of the south. The 14th Gemina and the 20th Valeria Roman legions were in Anglesey in western Britain and made up a comprised force of around 10,000 men. This area is in the northwesternmost tip of modern-day Wales. The legion was effectively on the complete opposite side of Britain when Boudicca's rebellion would break out. Gaius Suetonius Paulinus, the governor of Britain, was in Wales with his troops coordinating attacks to help wipe out the Druids that made the area their home. After the last uprisings that had occurred in the east or the Midlands, 
Many of the rebel Britons fled to this area around Wales to continue their fight against the occupying power. The Romans were applying their tried and true tactic of searching out the enemy in their homeland and destroying them, seeking to stamp out the descent from its origin. Soldiers of the 2nd Augusta Legion were also on the Western Front in Britain, but they were on the southern end of the territory. For the past decade, the 2nd Legion was fighting against the extremely hostile Silures tribe, which resided in the southern part of the modern-day area of Wales. You had Governor Paulinus and his troops fighting the Druids and their soldiers in northern Wales, and the 2nd Augusta fighting the Silures tribe in the south, both on opposite sides of the island from where the Iceni started their uprising in the east. If you're having a little trouble picturing the layout, check out the show notes on sparkhistory.com for a map of the tribe locations across Britain. There you have the four legions of Rome spread out in multiple locations dealing with their own fighting on the borders of the empire, unprepared for a large-scale rebellion of tribes they were supposedly allied or at least at peace with from within Roman-controlled territory. Boudicca gathered her troops and set out on a plan to bring about revenge on the Romans. Her army assembled and started moving south to meet up with an army of the Trinovantes. Together, the forces would launch an all-out attack on the centerpiece and capital city of Roman Britain, Camelodunum, known as modern-day Colchester. This is the city that we spoke about earlier, which was a centerpiece of hatred among the local tribes. It was full of people who sympathized with Rome, and since it was the Roman capital of Britain, it was a very strategic target for the Britons. When the Britons assembled an army, it was a little different than the practice of the Romans. The entire family, men, women, children, and elders, would all pack up onto carts to move along with the military force of warriors. With the style of fighting of the Britons, if they left people behind, they would be in an undefended village with no walls, fortifications, or fighting force, and an enemy could easily walk in and slaughter those left behind in a village. Better to keep the other members of your society along with you during the military campaign where they can be protected. One of the problems that this would lead to on this march of revenge is that there would be no one left back home to sow crops that could later be reaped to provide provisions for the troops. Boudicca and the Britons were going all in on this rebellion. If they weren't able to defeat the Romans and capture their supplies, they would eventually run out of food and people would starve. That concludes part two of the Boudicca series. If you would like to find out additional information, check out our other episodes, or help out the show, please head over to our website at sparkhistory.com. Stay tuned for part three of the Boudicca series, where we are going to get into the first attack by Boudicca and her army against a Roman city, and then the continued bloody campaign where the two sides duke it out. If you want to know right when that next part in the series will be released, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Spark History, 
or subscribe through your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening and have a great day.